let's take another trip in the magical Octal FM time machine. This time, we're setting the dials back 32 years to 1990. On our visit, we're going to check out some of the games that particularly stand out to us from this year. Hello and welcome to another episode of Octal FM. I'm Gilardo. And I'm Sefran. And we are continuing our, not a mini-series, our long series. Yeah, um, we're going to be at this for a while. We're going to be at this for a while. We're continuing our year in gaming series. Uh, last time was 1989. Uh, so this time it's uh, 1999. No, I'm kidding. It's, it's not. It's 1990. Um, <laughs> well, it would be kind of cool if we jump between 10 years and then jump back a year and <laughs> 10 years. And then we'd be like, why are you doing it this way? Because we wanted to be quirky. That's why. Yeah. So the last one we did, yeah, was 1989 back in episode 139. Um, so you can go back and listen to that. And if you haven't listened to any of these before, uh, we discuss games that we feel it's very subjective, are important both to us and to the industry. Uh, maybe they are, we feel that they were particularly influential in, you know, in, in the video game landscape. Maybe they inspired a new genre or they, you know, were the kickstart, you know, the inspiration behind a whole new franchise or something mm-hmm. like that. Or they do something technically very interesting. Or they were just super good games. Yeah. Or maybe they're just great. Uh, or, or, you know, we have real fond memories of playing them. Um, we'll get to fond memories of playing, I think, as we, we need a few more years yet. I'm only, I'm only one year old at this point. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, so these games on this list, I, I think I played one of them as a kid, like growing up, which is sort of the obvious one. Um, and the rest of them I played, if I have played them much later on in life, like as a, you know, someone who was going back to look at these games specifically. Yeah. So yeah, we're, we're still a little bit too young to be playing games at this point. Cause my first console was a SNES, which mm. is what we're going to be talking. One of the things we're going to be talking about this yeah. episode is this is the Super Nintendo. Um, but I, I think my first game console was a game gear. Yeah. And then like I had the snares and then even then I had like Street Fighter 2, I think, as my first mm. game. Mm. So, yeah, we're still not quite to the point where we were like playing these games as kids growing up. Like for us, that was very much sort of like the, the N64 era, yeah. I'd say more so. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I the, the Nintendo 64, well, the Game Boy was my first console um, and then the Nintendo 64. I didn't have a like home console before the Nintendo 64. Mm. So, yeah, I'm the same. Also, like we're going to talk about Games that belong in this in this episode are ones that were first released in 1990. Um, so, yep. um, yeah, as you mentioned, with the Super Nintendo, like that didn't launch until 1992 in Europe. <laughs> um, we are def- we are still in that point of video game history where there are sometimes colossal gaps in releases, which are mm. unthinkable nowadays. Like, absolutely. Uh, I mean, apart from, I guess. But, you know, at the time of recording, Lost Ark, which is like a free-to-play Diablo-style game, which was in Korea for a while before it suddenly became popular over here. I guess sometimes we have that, like obscure games in one region, like eventually get launched somewhere else. Um, yeah, but otherwise most games are pretty much released within days of each other at absolute most yeah, now. exactly. And this seems to be the case because a lot of these games have been made in Japan and the localization effort either wasn't even considered 
or it was just going to be too hard to have it done beforehand. So, yeah. like, I think we talked about this in the past. I think we talked about this with, like, Pokemon, for example, because mm, I know when yeah. they had to localize Pokemon Red and Blue mm. from uh, Red and Green, the original the original Japanese versions, yeah. they kind of had to, like, remake the game to make it work not in Japanese because it was so, like, bodged together. Yeah. So, like, in a lot of cases, these games were either never intended to come out of Japan. In fact, some of these never did come out of Japan, in fact. Mm. Um, and when they do, it takes a significant amount of effort. So I'm guessing that's why. Whereas now, because the market is so much wider and, like, the, they need yeah. to have the, the market everywhere to be able to even make profit in some cases, yeah. that's just not needed or even, like, feasible nowadays. We're still at, like, even in 1990, we're still at such an early stage for video games like mm. you know we started this series with 1985 and you know we picked that year because like that's only then we're only right now five years in to sort of like video games really starting to become a thing like there's a lot of yes. you know yeah, in like an actual culture. For this, there's a lot of stories about you know just people not really understanding video game design development publishing mm. or anything mm. at this stage like there's a lot of like making it up as you go along i was looking at a um a video game magazine from this era like a pdf scan of a video game magazine and i was like i don't even really understand this magazine like like reading it because it's like you can tell like they have still haven't really worked out how to do video game journalism like and how yeah. to like report on video games like it's very strangely written laid out like worded it's like i'm like what is this thing that i'm reading i don't understand i really couldn't follow yeah 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 like, know, like pc magazines of the day were probably like very scene-ish PC yeah. scene, which we'll we, talk about in this episode as well, actually. Yeah. But then on the flip side of that, like the Nintendo-focused ones are, are very much like almost kid, just kids' magazines. Mm-hmm. They, there's no interest in the fact that like, you know, adults might want to be playing these yeah. games at all. They are very much kids' magazines. Exactly. Yeah. So still at that point in 1990. And this is also a time when we're seeing some games where they're trying to do something a bit different now. Like more Western studios are starting to like become more confident in making mm. interesting games for a wider audience yeah like one that stands out for me actually is the very first one we mentioned we've got on the list here and that was dragon's lair mm. you you know about dragon's lair I'm i guessing. think so yeah it was the it was the sort of like kind of point and click adventure game kind of like cinematic oh, fmv yeah. game yeah, yeah, yeah that was done by don bluth one mm. of the like old disney style animators right yes. and it's, it's very much just like quick time event the game before quick time <laughs> events were a thing right um and it was very much designed to just like eat your quarters basically because there was no way you could possibly know like what to do and when at the right time because mm-hmm. the, the timing was so precisely required like you just always fail but it was very interesting because it looked like a movie it looked like a cartoon you were playing Mm. so that again that was sort of like quite interesting and and out of the out of the comfort zone of sort of western style development and there were a few other games like that as well um things like star tropics Mm. was like a very was a western designed game for a western market but made by a Japanese studio. Mm. Very strange, very different. Um, and then things like The Secret of Monkey Island yeah. came out as well, which was taking the point-to-click adventure game, but sort of like trying to make it a little bit more accessible, a little bit less rub everything on everything. Yeah. <laughs> Still quite a lot of rub everything <laughs> on everything, but, you know. But then on the flip side of that, you also had quite a lot of different sequels this yeah. year as well. Big um, sequel time, like, We've it? talked about all of these games before, which is why we're not going to talk about them again, because they don't do anything massively different. Mm. So, like, Digital Devil Story Megami Tensei 2 Very good. came out, which has yep. nothing to do with the first game other than the fact that it shares similar mechanics. Yeah. Um, Final Fantasy 3 came out, which yep. was kind of unremarkable, if I'm honest with you. I think 3 is, like, quite forgettable, unfortunately. Mm. I know there's going to be some 
three stands in the listeners yeah. that are going to be raising their pitchforks. One that I can't believe we're not talking about is Mega Man 3. Like, many people consider Mega Man 3 to be like the best Mega Man. Mm. Like, most people say 2 and 3, but like, it just doesn't do enough differently from 2 to make it worth talking mm. about. And we talked about 2 in quite some length, so... Yeah, sorry about that for people who love Mega Man 3. <laughs> um, other interesting games that like just sort of stand out as kind of like, oh, that was that was a neat neat game was Act Razor. Mm-hmm. That was sort of that, that weird like God Sin game that was also sort of like an action game at the same time. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you ever played that one. I, I saw not. that one. No. Played. It's kind of weird. It's, it's kind of cool. Like you, you sort of like raise a civilization in like the God mode almost like populous right. or something like from yeah. the previous episode we did but then you go into sort of like a 2d side scroll and almost like altered beast style gameplay right yeah, yeah. kind of kind of cool smash tv was kind of fun that was sort of like a twin stick shooter but in the form of like a co-op but not mm. co-op like arcade game where like you had to go from like room to room like fighting bad guys like win money on like a reality tv show pretty yeah. cool and then you had a uh, railroad tycoon yeah as well which was that was sid myers i think right um yeah, it was Sid Meier's, um, but it's funny, it's not related to any of the other Tycoon games, which are Chris Sawyer. Like, you've got the, yeah, like Transport Tycoon and uh, Roller, Roller Coaster, Coaster Tycoon and things yeah. like that, like completely unrelated. Um, yeah, Railroad Tycoon, sort of, we talked about SimCity before, right? Um, mm-hmm, and like, mm-hmm. we're sort of starting to see that, like, you know, like stretching the legs of like keyboard and mouse interactions, like half user interface, half game type mm. things, um, like, like really sort of like... Yeah, like doing simulation stuff, which you just weren't seeing on consoles because a controller just doesn't really... And I guess at this point, (laughs) the idea of using a mouse to play a game is still a little bit alien to a lot of Mm. people because like a mouse is a tool to open a Word document and then use your keyboard. That's it sort of thing. Um, So slowly and slowly that the mouse is becoming an integral part of controlling games, you know, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, exactly. Um, But... We're jumping straight into the one thing that we've already talked about, and that that was the launch of the Super Nintendo. Yeah. Yeah, November 1990 in Japan, not until April 1992 in Europe. Um, it had two launch games uh, that were that were really key and really sort of like big games for the year. Mm. Um, that was Super Mario World uh, and F-Zero. Mm. Um, Both big titles that you can still sort of look back on yeah. now. Is that yes, yeah, yeah, you can see why these were 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 chosen to sort of lead the yeah. charge for what was to them the Super Famicom, and yeah. to us was the Super Nintendo. And I think like Super Mario World and F Zero, but particularly Super Mario World, has aged. They've aged really, really well. Like, oh yeah, for like sure. Better than probably most of the other games on this list. I guess it probably helps that it was at the end of 1990 and not the start. So you've got like a mm. whole year maybe on some of the other games. Um, but yeah, like Super Mario World in particular, you know, it's the next, the next one. Super Mario Brothers Three was also was it wasn't exactly a small game, um, but Super Mario World like launching the snares with that, like introducing Yoshi as a character, um, continuing the sort of evolution of the whole overworlds that you had in in Super Mario Brothers yeah, Three, all the secret levels, adding yes, yeah, so many secrets, like like a like a really really like fantastic number of secrets in super mario world that's what i remember from playing it myself i mm. i think i probably first played it properly on the game boy advance when they re-released it on that mm-hmm. um but mm-hmm. i and then otherwise i did play it a little bit on all stars all stars and worlds when they released that yeah. version of all stars yeah yeah um, that was my and first that was, I think that was how i played it first in fairness yeah. as well yeah i think you're right uh and then to there to mario world 2 as well with uh with was that yoshi's island it was wasn't it yeah. yes yeah, um, um, but not to, not to sort of undersell F Zero though. In no, fairness, because no. F Zero was 
although maybe like technically that's important from like a historical point of view for Nintendo, but F-Zero was really important from almost like a technical point of view in terms right. of what the console could do. And that was to showcase that mode seven. Yeah, exactly. The like, yeah, they basically would take a 2D sort of sprite or texture or whatever and then skew it um so that it could be it would give the illusion of you could use it mostly for giving that illusion of 3d but you also saw it used to like scale sprites so you would see that Mm -hmm. in in things like super mario world they would use it to like scale things um zoom things in and out kind of thing um but yeah in f-zero they used it to kind of make that flat you know flat track that's why the track is completely flat right like there Mm -hmm. is no like stuff on the track there's there's barely Mm. any like going up and down even like ramps and stuff like that like it's almost non-existent because it didn't like it was it had to be kind of that would break the illusion almost Um, yeah and that's why like we i think we talked about this because we 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 don't need to go too much into too much detail with f-zero because we talked about it in our defining a genre racing games episode Mm -hmm. um but it that's also why it's like set in the sky and floating mm. it's so that they don't have to deal with terrain around the edges yep. makes sense um, yeah why not give yeah. it any reason to make it a sci-fi as well that makes it also good make, yeah but got yeah rid the, of the these games are well. yeah well that, that was what's called f-zero friction zero yeah yeah right <laughs> conveniently um, means they have less sprites to draw <laughs> exactly so they're not they're not stupid these people are they mm. but no these games were were really important to the launch of the super nintendo uh and you can it's amazing to look at the difference between the fact that these came out in 1990 and then like the next game on the list that i want to talk about also came out in the same year yeah and yet by comparison it looks like absolute ass i don't know if you've seen screenshots <laughs> of this game but like it looks like the kind of thing that you'd make like in the most basic of like rpg yeah. maker on steam nowadays or something like yeah considering the fact that it came out within like you know what six months of super yeah. mario world it's kind of crazy to look at in fact i would um, say that all of the remaining games look like garbage compared to super mario <laughs> like world yeah. <laughs> which which really just goes to show to how well those games were made in fairness yeah. and, and the power of the super nintendo yes um, but the next game i want to talk about was um fire emblem the mm. first Fire Emblem, the actual first Fire Emblem game, uh, which was called Shadow Dragon and the Blade of Light. Um, that's a pithy title, isn't it? Yeah. Um, very <laughs> Japanese, very Japanese, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, in fairness, it did come out in April of 1990. So, mm. you know, a whole six months, you know. Um, but <laughs> it was only released on the Famicom in Japan. It never, ever came out of Japan. And in fairness, the first six Fire Emblem games were completely Japanese mm. exclusive. Yeah. And... It was made by uh, Intelligent Systems, who mm. were known for making um, the Famicom Wars or Advance Wars, as we yeah. know. Yeah. Um, they also made the Paper Mario games, mm. uh, and they made the WarioWare games as yeah. well. Are they like a um, second party? Like yes, like yes, they're not right. really third party, are they? Because they're doing all <laughs> so of they were stuff like with... they they were um, credited for making lots of other games as well. Things like things like like metroid for example mm. and like uh tennis for super nintendo yeah. for the nes sorry things like that but they weren't really very like they they weren't directly involved in that that's like probably staff was like sent from one studio to another right. sort of thing like one department room to another within the same building almost think that kind of thing back in the day yeah um but yeah they're very much integrated as part of the nintendo's sort yeah. of structure as a whole especially at that time um, but one of the interesting things about them is that there's not a particularly like standout individual to like point out like this is the director, especially for a game like Fire Emblem, we now think is uh, this like big franchise, right, mm-hmm. with very specific direction. Um, yeah, from what I can tell, there's no one person is like, you know, go, oh, this is the person that sort of pioneered this game. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just sort of a game that I think they enjoyed making 
because they enjoyed making Famicom Wars, which was Advance Wars. Mm. Um, of course, yeah. And, and it, it's the very first, for the most part, from what I can gather at least anyway, tactics RPG game. Mm. So when we think of like tactics games, things like uh, Advance Wars kind of come to mind, like the idea of like that turn-based grid battle system, right? But the difference with the original Fire Emblem game was that this is... If you played a Fire Emblem game, this is literally no different. They're almost exactly all the same now in that mm. they have characters, like individual characters to play as rather than, you know, faceless units. And you have to be very careful with the way in which you use those units because they were permadeath. You know, right. that was that was new to this kind of concept was yeah. the idea of like, you need to look after these characters. And although the very first Fire Emblem game, now the games are like, you know, ridiculously convoluted stories with like, you know, dating <laughs> yeah. sim levels of interactions for characters, etc. Well, At the time, was around. No, there is no school to wander around. That's not even a joke either in the yeah, most recent one. There exactly. is an actual school. Um, they can't get away from high school in Japan, can they, Buzz? No. Um, <laughs> it, it was very, very simple by comparison. Mm. Like the characters barely had any level of interaction beyond what was part of the story. Yeah. But the fact that there was still a story for a mm. tactical game, like a strategy yeah. game, you know, is still pretty cool. Um, and most people will never have heard of this game. But they do know a character from it, and you know a character from I it, do. despite having never played the game. And that's Marth. Yeah. Um, and that's all thanks to uh, to Smash Bros. Yeah. That was very much the reason why Fire Emblem was even brought to the West entirely. Uh, and I am guarantee we will talk about Fire Emblem again in the future of this, this series mm. of games. Mm. Um, because Marth and Roy, who Roy was from the seventh game, sorry, Roy was from the sixth game within the series, um, The Binding Blade, Um they they became Smash Bros. Melee, and like everyone was like, "Who are these anime boys?" Yeah, right, exactly. Um, and that's what sort of prompted them, and their popularity and their interest of, uh, in people's interest in them is what sparked them to bring the seventh game, the Blazing Blade, to the West. And that's sort of like where we got Fire Emblem as a whole as we know it today. Yeah, it's kind of nuts, isn't it, that there were these you know big, popular, important games that. It took Smash. It took a character appearing in Smash Brothers for them yeah. to ever like actually make their way to the West. And like thirteen years later, I think it would. And have been. I guess we sort of look back now, and it's like that's crazy that you didn't release these games in the West. But presumably they had their reasons, and presumably th- at the time there was no potentially no market for it, or they, mm. they they didn't have the capacity to 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 West, you know, to to localize these games or their research suggested that no one would buy them or you know, i think some the research reason. was whether it was true or not was the same for a lot of games which was a, they thought a, a western or rather specifically an american audience would find them too hard mm, right because they were like not games that you could like press the button and the dude wins like you had to think about them they were strategy games yeah and as a result of it i think they were like oh the american kids won't like this because it's too difficult yeah but obviously, they weren't necessarily thinking about slightly older players, mm. like teenagers and up. Yeah. But again, these were still sort of seen as almost toys to some extent. And that was the thing, wasn't there. it, at that point, especially in the West? Like, we are still yeah. in the, like, games as toys era, um, mm. for very much so. But in the West, in fairness, um, there were other games being made that were just as important, weren't there? Yes. One of the games that I wanted to talk about from 1990 was Commander Keen. Mm. Uh, Commander Keen was... If you're not familiar with it, it's a platformer. Um, it's pretty much the first side-scrolling platformer for the IBM PC platform, like if like so for for DOS, effectively. Yeah, um, and that's because PCs at the time were 
basically too underpowered to do what consoles could do. Like consoles mm. like the like the NES and the Super Nintendo, they had special like they were designed in such a way that they supported side-scrolling graphics, right? Because yeah. games but had the hardware was designed graphics. specifically for that. Yeah, yeah. like you, they knew that that would be a thing because that was how arcades worked. That was how like lots of games used like movement from left to right or up and down. So that was baked into all of these consoles. It was not baked into the IBM PC like hardware because hmm. that was for making spreadsheets. And- yes, because and that's the interesting <laughs> thing, isn't it? Like it's almost come full circle now. Like consoles are now PC effectively whereas back yeah. then it was like pcs trying to emulate what consoles could do exactly so no one had cracked like doing side scrolling it on a pc in a way that you needed for a platformer um but someone did come along and he's <laughs> known for coming along and doing crazy things with with code and that's john carmack um mm. who you know also is famous for like a fast inverse square root which is like used in 3d graphics and was i think probably first in doom or wolfenstein or whatever yeah we talked about uh what john carmack did and kind of how incredible it was in our defining an fps episode exactly. where we talked about wolfenstein slash doom slash quake slash yeah. everything he's sort of been involved with and there in since exactly and so like he came up with an algorithm it was like an adaptive tile refresh and it was exploiting a couple of mechanics of like graphics chips at the time and sort of the way that you could do things to effectively simulate um at the time they were like targeting super mario brothers 3 as an example and actually he like put together in an evening a like or like overnight him and like a couple of others put together like a a copyright infringing uh, version of <laughs> Super Mario Brothers 3. It had some funny name that was like such and such and the copyright infringement or something like this um, <laughs> to like prove that it could be done. Um, and and in fact, they actually pitched to Nintendo to make a Super Mario Brothers 3 PC port because uh, Super Mario Brothers 3 was so incredibly popular um, mm. at the time and was selling so much. Um, and they actually made one. They they like made a demo version of Super Mario Brothers three. And in fact, you can find the videos of this of this old PC ports that they that they demoed. But Nintendo rejected it. You know, they were committed to only making stuff for Nintendo. You know, releasing stuff on mm, Nintendo consoles. Yeah, they were like, probably that was a little bit wary about allowing their their IPs on these like relatively untamed yeah wild areas of of gaming with P, which was PCs at the time. Exactly, exactly. So, but they didn't want it to go to waste. Um, so that was where Commander Keen kind of came out of. It came out of this, like, well, we've we've got this tech that can do side-scrolling. Like, we should absolutely make a platformer out of it. We're the only ones that can do it. Um, yeah, so they literally, made, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they made Commander Keen, which is a, yeah, it's like a sci-fi, very light-hearted um, platformer. There's like a pogo stick mechanic for jumping. Um, and it's very, like... I don't know. Like, it, there's lots of Commander Keen games. It was very popular, but it's very of an era of like mm. platformer game design. There's like collect all the random things in, that are floating yeah. around. So, like the level design is sort of like <laughs> interesting, but doesn't make any sense. Um, no. That's that sort of style of platformer, and it's also interesting because John Carmack and a few others, like John Romero as well, and there was a few other people as, involved, and they were like making this whilst they were working for um, another company. Yeah, they were working for a company called Softdisk at the time. Uh, and I think they actually admitted later that they used Softdisk machines to make Commander <laughs> Keen. And I think they got into a little bit of trouble about it because it wasn't developed or published by Softdisk. It was developed by 
I think they called themselves Ideas from the Deep, and that's actually where id Software, the name id Software, oh, comes from. I didn't from. know that, actually. That's um, cool. Yeah, so this is like the success of Commander Keen and also like disagreements with Softdisk made, you know, John Carmack, John Romero, the others that are, um, I keep saying the others, which is not great. I know Adrian Carmack, no relation to John Carmack. Um, like they all, like they left Softdisk and formed id Software, and it was off the back of commander keen being so successful like it was a huge success for them um, and mm. it allowed them to 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 break away from soft disk and and form its software and obviously then the, the rest is his, very much history yeah it's such a wonderful like tale of the pc scene at the time it really yeah, right. is like i love this like very <laughs> scrappy nature very of, like, scrappy late nights in like this this like i was it based in austin texas am i right in thinking was, about, like it's probably uh, yeah. and they would have been in like this like you know industrial unit with all these like really ridiculously expensive computer yeah. systems that they were just sort of like using when they weren't really supposed to be and, yeah yeah i i love the the vibe that it gives yeah absolutely and commander keen was also released as shareware like like they they, they published it first on like loads of popular bulletin board systems mm. and i think we've talked about them before but if not then you don't know what we're talking about then go and look it up and we'll talk about it in a future episode sometime <laughs> um, yeah that is definitely a future history episode they like yeah they lo- they released like the first e- there were like three episodes or something and the first one was free like shareware and then you had to like mail in your order mm. for the other two episodes um, yeah and then you have like some floppy that's sent to your house exactly exactly so like that kind <laughs> By of hand uh, almost like, like it would have been made at the studio like they've just got right that one's in that jiffy bag yeah, off it goes to the exactly. post box <laughs> um so yeah like very like like you say small scale scrappy type stuff but like the starting you know off this like desire to try and like emulate super mario brothers 3 effectively on the pc we had Commander Keen and ultimately id Software, like off the back of this sort of like, you know, technical feat, like technical trickery that let them make a game, right? That was otherwise impossible to make. Yeah, uh, at given the, time. the hardware at the time, yeah. Yeah. What's really interesting is that this isn't the only example of like games being made on reasonably like underpowered hardware, but being made like beyond what you would expect them to make, especially given the fact that like... The, con- the consoles themselves was was now very technically impressive mm. and one of the games that i want to talk about which most people who know me probably roll their eyes at wanting to talk about this even more um <laughs> was metal gear 2 solid snake mm. which was released on the msx2 just like it's uh, the original game was the original metal gear yeah and the msx2 was not a particularly powerful computer i guess you could call it computer like a yeah. standard type of machining you know it was pretty underpowered even then, yeah. but yet they made this game and it, you wouldn't believe it was running on this like really old machine. Like it's so colorful. Mm. Like the colors are, inc- are crazy how much they get out of it. Like everything's so fluid. There's so many moving parts on screen, which I believe off the MSX was actually quite difficult to make work. Like right. to have lots of like individually moving pieces, you know. Mm. And the reason I want to talk about this beyond the fact that it's a Metal Gear game <laughs> is not just that but it's also the fact that this isn't the only second metal gear game <laughs> there right. are two there are two second metal gear games yeah. weirdly enough <laughs> um and the story of it is is just kind of funny because the original metal gear came out on the msx in japan only and it was it was popular it was pretty good yeah people liked it um and it was developed and published by konami specifically so we we know where they all go uh, yeah. metal gear castlevania etc but then pachinko machines later um <laughs> and it did okay and then it was ported to the nes for the western market i think it was like a year and a half between those two things right if i remember rightly 
And it did really well, despite the fact that the NES port of the original Metal Gear is What's in it atrocious. Yeah. <laughs> it's so atrociously bad. Like, nothing works properly. Like, the game mechanics do not work at all on a on an NES. Yeah. Like, at, at all. Because the idea is, to, obviously, stealth mechanics, like what Metal yeah, Gear right. is known for, right? You couldn't do stealth on the game because it just didn't work in the same way at all. It, yeah. It's just this, like, really kind of clunky, like, action beat-em-up style game yeah. on, the, on, the, on the Nintendo system. But it sold really well. Mm. Like, people loved this game for some reason. And as a result, Konami wanted another one. Yeah. But rather than going to Kojima and the people who made the original one, they went to a different set of people in their offices and men- and told them to make a new game. Yeah. Without consulting Kojima at all. <laughs> and it was only that Kojima was on a commuter train in Tokyo that he was talking with one of his colleagues from that department specifically that he found out this game was even being made. Mm. And he went well, I want to make another one. Yeah. Like, and it, well, actually, no, that's technically not true. He went, well, I didn't want to make another one, but now I kind of want to. Yeah. <laughs> because you guys are making... So he went to his higher-ups in Konami and he pitched the idea and they actually went ahead and said yes. But this, again, was for the MSX rather than the Nintendo Entertainment System. This one didn't get a port, so this one never came out of the West. Mm. This one never came out of Japan ever until it got sort of like re-release port as part of like um collector's editions yeah. on um like playstation one versions of and playstation 2 versions of metal gear solid yeah but what's really interesting is that this game is almost like vaguely it's the one is the game that makes the rest of the series make sense right, right. So the first one's sort of like you, you can sort of like twist it to make it fit within the rest of the canon of the metal gear series right mm-hmm. which if you know anything about metal gear is incredibly twisted yeah um and <laughs> convoluted but Effectively, Metal Gear Solid, the one on the PlayStation, the one that most people know, is practically a pseudo-remake of this right, game. Right, okay. Not in terms of, like, the location and the stories yeah. is different, but, like, all the same beats are there, like, very similar fight right, right. scenes, very similar mechanics, very yeah, similar yeah, challenges. Yeah. It's like and a parallel universe. <laughs> kind of, yeah. but also not, because in canon, it's almost vaguely made the case that this idea of it being a copy is true within the the story oh my god and that this whole scenario of metal gear solid was made to mimic the events of metal gear 2 to make it so that the soldiers could be experiencing the same sort of traumas and difficulties to make them the be the best soldiers possible only in fucking metal gear would that be like <laughs> would they manage to weave that into canon in a way yeah. that actually trust kojima like right? matches the, the the vibe of the rest of the series that that, that and this this is a little bit of a slash like humble but that man that you shook his hand yeah. you know um yeah <laughs> that's that's his mind for yeah you right there. quite like, exactly you can't just be like oh yeah it's just because i really like this game but i wanted to make it on like a bigger better better console that i just remade it. it's like no, no 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 it was intentional yeah yeah this was intentional this is, this is how it's meant to be <laughs> yeah we will make this work <laughs> <laughs> but it was still a really fantastic game despite all the convolutedness mm. that they then followed um it was followed on the same sort of mechanics it was very stealth orientated mm. um there was a surprisingly sort of like mature storyline about like the dependence of the west on oil and the mm. idea of like terrorism stopping oil from being available to people and nuclear oh, proliferation <laughs> etc you know given the current circumstances of the world it's interesting yeah. that isn't it yeah. it was in 1990 um yeah and 
it's just a very underappreciated game because it was so inaccessible for so long. Um, yeah. And even when it is accessible, they're on like sort of like premium edition versions of the of the like Metal Gear Two and Three mm. on the PlayStation Two. So it's sort of hard to try and like play them now as well. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's one of those where like if you enjoy Metal Gear as a as a series, this one is definitely one you should pick up. And it's especially if you play the MSX version, you can really appreciate sort of like how wonderful this was, considering how old it is. Mm. Yeah, I just can't believe that it. We were talking about this before we started recording. Like these, like really obscure, weird systems like platforms like the msx or not even a platform mm. it's like a standard for making a computer yes yeah and like there were like loads of them and they were only really popular in the east despite being made by microsoft or like yeah invented yeah, by yeah. Microsoft. i didn't even realize that until you pointed yeah, out actually, i guess that's where the like, m comes a microsoft from. sort of like yeah it makes sense i suppose yeah um yeah so like bizarre how yeah they like chose that platform and you know, despite the fact that the platform is very obscure, really, mm. like, you know, okay, wasn't obscure in Japan necessarily, but like, just relatively speaking, like, this is of the era where we had like, a thousand platforms, you know, of, like different mm-hmm. variations on PCs and, you know, all of Amiga's spectrum, like everything, all of these yeah. things. Um, for something like that to like, break through all of that, and like become something that remains popular and remains, you know, something that is you know developed on and, and and built upon and like you know more and more games over the years even to this day kind of thing like that's that's really interesting and that's why mm. it belongs on this list right yes um, pretty much yeah so not only was the game important from the game the franchise point of view but also for the the console or rather yeah. the platform that it was on and i guess by that logic the next game doesn't necessarily belong on our list because it hasn't particularly <laughs> like you know stood the you know, the, the, the series, the ideas behind it haven't stood the test of time. In fact, they kind of went downhill from here. Um, it's left a bit of a weird legacy as well. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit odd. But Wing Commander, we want to talk about Wing Commander mm. um, to kind of round off this episode. This came out in um, September 1990. It was a PC game like it was on. It was in DOS, um, but it was also on the Amiga. It was eventually, I think, on the SNES, right? And like, yeah, like a bunch of different platforms um, ported to various different things. Um, Wing Commander is sort of most interesting to me anyway, because Wing Commander is the like brainchild of Chris Roberts. And Chris Roberts is now famous for getting lots of money from people um, <laughs> to, to make a simulation of the universe called Star Citizen. Yeah, which uh, we've talked about a lot in the past because of about our connection to it, like a through lot. things like Elite Dangerous and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And like, I couldn't find a good source for this apart from Wikipedia. And I think maybe it comes from a book, but apparently Wing Commander was like one of the most expensive games to make at the time. Like the budget was like the mm. highest of, of any game. Now, I, I can't it. imagine that they actually like caught, you know, had good statistics at the time of like game budgets because we're so early into video game development. But it does make for a great anecdote that, you know, now yeah. we've got Star Citizen. <laughs> like Chris Roberts has been doing yeah, this yeah. since 1990. Like he's just like <laughs> making really expensive games. Like that's his thing. And that's that's, his that's also what happened with Freelancer as well in the sense right. that it was going out of proportion and eventually they just said, no, you're releasing yeah. it as it is. Exactly, exactly. Um, but, yes. but it kind of makes sense as well because it was, it's made by Origin Systems, which you probably don't know who they who they are now but they were behind the ultima games yeah. and in fairness ultima was kind of like the de facto pc game really yeah. of the year yeah, yeah, yeah. 
you know, and as a result, you can see the fact that they probably did have a lot of money to spend oh, yeah. if they wanted to. Absolutely, absolutely. You also had System Shock as well, right? From Origin, mm. they were from Origin Systems. Like, yeah, big, you know, like Warren Spector was involved in this as well. He's, you know, he was responsible for DSX and System Shock and had a hand mm-hmm. in lots of Ultima games and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, like it was a uh, Wing Commander sort of is interesting. You know, it really kicked off that well i think anyway it really kicked off that kind of genre um you know you had it x-wing and x-wing versus tie fighter and all of those games were yeah effectively yeah, yeah. a response to wing commander uh, they mm. were probably also kind of better um like they I were think, definitely better <laughs> like i think after like there were more there were lots of games after wing commander there was also an, a hideous movie um and <laughs> you know like they were never really that great i don't even really think the wing commander was that good i think it was just the first <laughs> like and that just i got, think it was because it know. was the first and for many people like on your dos machine yeah right it was quite fun game. Yeah. Like a lot of games, and it's it's almost pains me to say this, but like a similar game from a similar time period was uh, Elite and the Frontier 2. Right. right. Yeah. Which were much slower. Yes. Much, much yes. slower. Much more of a thinky person's game. Yeah. Whereas Wing Commander was very much an arcade style yeah. experience where if you just, you wanted to go and fly a spaceship and blow bad guys yeah. up, you could. But in fairness, it did have that element of storytelling to it as well. It I mean, did. it looks incredibly dated mm. and it's really kind of like B-movie camp, but at least it does have that quite strong cinematic experience yeah. going for it too. Right. So I can see why it got popular at the time. Yeah. But it hasn't aged no, great. No, it's aged terribly. Um, and Wing Commander just as a genre just aged badly from then on. I think yeah. you're right. It, it had, what was really interesting is like, for for video games it had a great story action world you know setting was all really good um it had some sort of you know point and click style bits of cinematic and cutscenes and stuff like that um and it's also interesting because if you failed a mission there was like a failed mission path if you like like mm-hmm. the, the story continued from your it wasn't point just of game over redo yeah so that's also interesting that added to its replayability as well because it's not a long game um but you can you know you can play through it and if you lost the first time you can try again and win and you get a different story and like different things happen mm-hmm. um so yeah it definitely um had some interesting things going for it it at the time it looked pretty good um definitely doesn't look good now and but yeah really (laughs) mainly sort of i guess near near and dear to our hearts in particular you know thinking about how much fun you and i had playing freelancer which you know is is kind of in the same you know relate is it is it actually related to wing commander freelancer like i I get confused because that's like privateer isn't there and that's like wing commander yeah it it might be sort of like in the head canon of chris roberts yeah right exactly (laughs) um but yeah obviously you know it really that sort of like arcade style space sim like it showed what was possible it you know it you got things like x-wing and x-wing versus tie fighter and stuff like that off the back of it freelancer eventually you know more elite games star citizen lol uh like yeah yeah, it it, it's interesting from that point of view yeah it's it's an interesting nugget of history which is probably it's worth it for just that and nothing else Mm. Uh, although in fairness oh, i think it was the third game and the fourth game did have mark hamill in them <laughs> did you not know that i didn't know that no mark hamill plays like one of the main characters in the third and fourth game and this back, it's back to the thing about the crazy budgets isn't it <laughs> yeah well there you go exactly i mean bearing in mind this was like 1990 so mark hamill was like still a really big actor oh at this yeah point, you know, would have cost a back fortune. of all the three star wars films and all the rest of him like yeah 
Yeah, I can imagine that must have cost an arm and a leg. <laughs> I sort of see it as like, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Wing Commander, the later ones as well, like, yeah, they had like cutscenes and live action stuff and things like that. Mm-hmm. It's sort of mm-hmm. very, very uh, reminiscent of Commander Conquer, right? Like similar sort of yeah. Um, yeah, vibe yeah. Um, around similar kinds of times yeah the um, fmv style way yeah, of doing things yeah. like that sort of era of, you know massive where, compression on a cd yeah and you know you've only people with catastrophic movie level budgets um could <laughs> could could achieve those kinds of things yeah um, which is why they were so few and far between at the time fun well, good times i mean this this last one is more for the history i suppose yeah. more than anything else the other games are actually quite good I mean, <laughs> even things like even things like Fire Emblem, which looks terrible, is still kind of fun to play because mm. at the core of it, it's still the game that you know and love from all Fire Emblem games. Yeah. But this one is just because of an interesting piece of history and yeah. how it's like weirdly tangentially connected to a, a very infamous game now. Yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah, that's that's the games uh, on our list. Um, but, I, you know, there were many other games in 1990. This is not the only yeah. ones. Um, and maybe we've missed something that you played or think that we should have talked about depending on your age um i mean in fairness it was super easy to miss them like i very nearly missed my fire emblem entry in this mm, one like i was yeah. going through the list of all the games that were in 1990 i was like oh okay yeah let's yeah, talk about that and it was only like the third sort of website that i visited to just get some inspiration did i notice oh fire emblem mm. came out that, that that year as well mm. so i guarantee we've missed something quite important or interesting etc yeah. so yeah do let us know and i would be like I will be surprised, I imagine, about some mm. of the, the gems we've forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. Let us know. Uh, you can email us, show at octal.fm, or send us a tweet at octal.fm on Twitter, or Facebook, facebook.com forward slash octal.fm. Mm, all the good times. Um, and next time we'll be doing 1991. Yeah. I actually don't know what that came out in that year. Um mm. But I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's coming closer and closer to the years where I can, like, say, I played yeah. that on release. Games we actually know? played. Well, Sonic the Hedgehog <laughs> is the big one from 1991, not to spoil ah, it. Okay, bit. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. No doubt we'll be talking about that. Um, but yes, until then, I've been Gelada. And I've been Saffron. And catch us again for another episode of Octal FM very soon. And you, you've heard this song sped up 1.5 times. It's slap. <laughs> We've used this this piece of music for like 20 years, and yet it was only recently that I realised it was so good sped up as well. It made it really took me by surprise the first time I hit play, and it was double speed, and I was like, "Oh my god, what is this? What this is, is so on? good." That's your encouragement, listeners. Now listen to the ending credits of our every episode, but like put your player at like 1.5 times yeah, speed. Exactly. Let's find out for yourself. Oxlade FM Easter eggs.